So, uh, Redeemer family, uh, Herb uh, has already read the passage that I'll be speaking from, so I won't uh, read that again. Also, we're starting a new uh, sermon series today. We'll be looking at uh, a few of the one another passages in the Bible. Uh, there's a small Greek word that's used uh, over 100 times in the New Testament, and it's a pronoun that marks uh, reciprocation between two persons or groups, and that, that's where this idea of one anothering comes from. So we'll spend eight weeks, but just to jog your memory, here are some of the ones that you may remember. In Romans, Paul says, we, though many are one body in Christ, are individually members one of another. He says, live in harmony with one another. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. In Galatians, Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love, serve one another. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Ephesians, he writes, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, encourage one another and build one another up. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, chapter 7, and he's talking to spouses. He says, do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited amount of time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting um, to meet together, as is the habit of some. And he goes on to say, uh, and all the more come together, encouraging one another as you see the day of Christ drawing near. In James, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. Peter says, show hospitality to one another and do this without grumbling. John says in 1 John, let us love one another for love is from God and, and whoever loves has been born of God. In other words, all of these New Testament writers are writing and using this same word. Now, here's my question. They're writing to different people, different churches, different places, and yet they're all using that same idea, one anothering correctly and biblically. Where did they get that from? I think they got it from Jesus. I think John 13, Jesus himself uses some one another's here, and I think it so impacted the early disciples that all of these epistles are seasoned with these one another commands. And so we're going to go back to Jesus, the one who uh, sort of starts this thing. I want us to look at our passage under uh, three headings. So if you're taking notes, these three uh, words. One is importance. The other is danger. And the third word is power. Importance, danger, and power. The first thing I want to look at in this passage is 
the importance of washing one another's feet. When was the last time someone washed your feet? And children, your parents doing it when they're bathing you doesn't really count. And obviously adults washing your own feet as you bathe, that, that doesn't count. I mean, really, when was the last time someone else literally washed your feet? The closest thing that I can kind of think of might be if, if you've been on your feet all day and you come home and you might want someone to rub your feet. Uh, that that kind of counts. Uh, but the closest thing that, that I sort of come up, came up with is if you've gotten a pedicure. If you've gotten a pedicure, you've walked inside of the nail salon and you are seated. And the moment you take your seat, someone takes your shoes off, your socks off, they run some warm water, and in running that warm water, you know, they, they, they put a stopper in it so that the water stays and your feet go inside of it. They turn the jets on, and, and you're sitting. You're enjoying being served. They come back a few minutes later, and then they put some, some, some solution in the water. They walk away again. They come back again, and they put this balm on your feet, and they take your feet out, and they begin to rub your feet and then they put them back in the water. They go away. They come back again, and this time it's with a file, and they begin to file the dead skin off, and they begin to cut your toenails, and they begin to, in one sense, serve you. And if you're sitting there, it's relaxing. It's satisfying, right? The dead skin starts to fall off, and and then you get up, and, and perhaps you went to sleep or you read a magazine while they were doing all of that. But as you sat comfortably in your chair, someone was working really hard. That's the image of what's kind of going on in our passage. That it, It's Passover, and Jesus has just told someone to prepare this room for Passover. And in preparing this room for Passover... It wasn't just the food. It wasn't just the place. It was also water. They didn't have running water. It was also the basins that you see Jesus using in our passage. Someone had to get all of that. And then the magic question as the disciples march into the room, who's going to wash feet? And then Jesus does it. He takes off an outer garment. He wraps a towel around himself. He gets the basin, and one by one, he pours water from one basin over Peter's feet, over Judas's feet, and he goes all through all the disciples 12 times where Jesus pours and washes, and then he pats their feet with a towel that's attached to him one, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. This was something that not even house servants would do. This is something that was, in the first century world, it was relegated for slaves. And yet what we see in our passage is Jesus is taking the posture of a slave. Has that ever happened to you when you walked into someone's house and if you're a woman, the woman of the home says, women, you go down here and 
let us wash your, let me wash your feet. Or if you're a man, the men, the man parades you down here and says, let me not only feed you, but before we do this, let me wash your feet. It, it, it doesn't happen in our culture. And that's why many scholars think that this is a cultural principle. But we must not lose this idea of the underlying principle that's driving it. This is a cultural practice, but there's a principle that, that, that's under it. Well, what is the principle that's beneath the practice? It's the reason why I had Herb read the, the longer section, because I think what Jesus does in verses 1 through 20, the foot washing, I think he actually explains it in verses 31 through 35. In other words, the overarching command is found right there in verse 34. He says, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Well, in other words, he is pointing them back uh, to something that just happened. And what just happened uh, in the passage that he's pointing them back and, and he's saying, I just did something. I loved you and I want you to go and do that. The question is, what was Jesus pointing back to? He was pointing back to the foot washing. He's actually saying that the foot washing was a practice and the principle beneath it was love. Love expressing itself through this posture, through this humility, through this attitude. Now, what makes doing this important? One, because it comes out of the mouth of Jesus himself. But, 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 but two, I, I do think it is an expression of the, 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 the second table of the law but, but, but three, I think it's, it's related to where this is all happening uh, in the context of John's gospel. And, and that is what makes it important. Suppose you knew that death was near, that in God's kindness, you knew that you have two weeks or two months or a year. How would that shape? what you did with the remaining days of your life. Is it not true that you would want to be with the people that you love? Is it not true that you would want to maybe eat your favorite foods? Is it not true that you would want to do some of the things that you've always wanted to do? Is it not true that if you knew that you would be dying in the future, that you would want to be able to say all that you wanted to say? And isn't this what makes the COVID-19 pandemic so hard? We watched one story last week where paramedics in New Orleans are literally telling people as they take people out of their homes uh, who have these symptoms to go ahead and say your goodbyes right now because you may not be able to be with them when they die. But suppose, by God's grace, you knew. Would it not change your words, who you would spend time with, where you would go, what you would eat, what you would do? Of course it would. 
And there are numerous times in the Bible when these things happen, when people are dying and they say what's important, they do what's important, they gather important people around them. I'll give you two examples. One is Abraham. In Genesis 24, Abraham summons his servant, and we're told that he is advanced in years. And he charged his servant. He says, put your hand under my thigh, which is a way to make a covenant, and swear to God that you will not take a wife for my son Isaac from the Canaanites. And then guess what happened in Genesis 25? Abraham dies. In other words, what happens in Genesis 24 is this farewell address. Abraham is saying the most important thing to me now is that my son marries a believer. And you swear to me that even though I will go and be with the Lord, that, that, that this piece of business that you will handle it's the same thing with Moses. As Moses is about to die and is unable to go into the promised land, he summons the people of Israel and he says, be strong and be courageous. The Lord will go before you and the Lord will raise up Joshua. Be strong and courageous. In other words, when Abraham is dying, when Moses is dying, they, they, they get to gather around the people they want to be with and they get to say what they think is utterly important and that's exactly what's happening in our passage this is Jesus's last Passover he's about to go and die and he gets to eat a meal with the people he loves the most and he starts to do what he thinks is the most important and he begins to say what he thinks is the most important thing that his followers need to hear and do you want to know where all of this is happening it's 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 our passage in other words, these are Jesus's departing words of all the things that Jesus could have said and could have done with hours left in his life. He chooses to get on his knees and he chooses to wash feet and then he commands this to the disciples and he tells them, this is important. It is so important that it's going to be some of the last words that you hear out of my mouth. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also are to wash one another's feet. I have given an example that you should do just as I have done to you. This idea of loving one another and washing one another's feet, that's important. So important that it would make its way into Jesus's final words. Now, the second point, the, the danger. What's the danger of, of not doing this, of, of not taking these words to heart, of thinking that we sort of get a pass on this? What's the danger of being a part of a church but our posture is only to come and to receive, and it's never to give. If our posture is only to be served and to never serve the body, right? What's the danger? Look, in, in all of the farewell addresses in the Bible, whether it's Abraham or Moses or Paul, that obedience to these words promote thriving. And disobedience to these words 
bring about damage. Look, Judas's name is mentioned in this passage. And I think this is John's way of saying, let us focus on what's happening to him and how he responds. Now notice verses 4 through 5. John tells us that he, Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garment. He took a towel and tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him, right? Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment, he resumed his place. Now, we know that Judas did not leave the room until after he had received the morsel of bread down there in verse 30. In other words, Judas received the foot washing. Judas heard the instruction. Judas partook of the bread. But what did he do? John says he went out into the night. And night in John's gospel, it's sort of this, this pointer to something evil is going on. Judas did not complete the loop. There's a loop here that Jesus is building, and here's what he's building. He's saying, my disciples receive my love, and then my true disciples, they give my love. And what did G Judas do? Judas receives the morsel. He receives the foot washing, but what does he do? The text says he does not finish the loop. He departs into the night, and what does he do when he goes into the night? He betrays Jesus. In other words, Judas never, never reciprocated love. He never gave love. In other words, Judas was a taker. He took money from the money bag. He took Jesus' love and tenderness. He took money from the religious leaders and he never reciprocated love now why why would he do that look at verse 2 it says during the supper when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus look at verse 27 and after he ate the morsel Satan entered him look at verse 30 and then Judas left do you see what John is trying to tell us? At its core, not reciprocating love is a mark of Satan's work. Jesus clearly says, I have given you an example. The servant isn't greater than his master nor the messenger greater than the one who sent him. And yet Judas is being led by one who doesn't want to submit to Jesus. He is being led by one who wants to be greater than the master. And is this not the essence of evil? Is this not how Satan fell? Satan was created by God. The demons were created by God upright and holy. And yet what we think we see from Scripture is Satan is not content to be a servant. 
He is not content to be where he is in creation. He wants to be God, and therefore he falls from that estate, and the demons fall from that estate, and the way that that he is defined in Scripture is a murderer. There is no good thing in him. He is a rebel. He is an accuser. And now he's at work in Jesus, in Judas. You see, I think we tend to think that Satan is doing those things that look vile and grotesque and sinister. We look at someone who commits a mass murder, who opens up a gun on a school, or who who murders thousands or ten thousands. We look at people, who, the, these grotesque things, and, and we can say in our minds, that's satanic. But I think if we think that that is the only place where Satan works, I think we're wrong. A scheme of the enemy. As C.S. Lewis tells us in Screwtape Letters, is that of concealing and minimizing. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, he writes this. He says, conceal ourselves. Keep our patient in the dark. Make devils these grotesque comic figures created by the modern imagination. Let them think that devils and the work of demons are only grotesque, abominable, and sinister, Arouse in their minds the picture of something in red tights. Let them not see that Satan also lurks where there is an unsmiling concentration upon the self, that this is the mark of hell. We must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity, his own advancement, where everyone has agreements with someone else, where everyone lives in the deadly serious passions of envy and self-importance and resentment. Do you, want, do you hear what C.S. Lewis is saying in Screwtape Letters and a subsequent letter? He's actually saying Satan works by deceiving us. He works by making us minimize the importance of completing the loop. We're created to receive love, and we're created to reciprocate and to give love and to not live as if this part of the loop is important. It's satanic, and it's wrong, and it's dangerous to receive mercy, to receive forgiveness, to receive grace, to receive the love of God, and to then withhold that. It's, it's more than sinful. John is saying it's satanic, and I think this is what's behind Paul's word in Galatians chapter 5. Now listen to the contrast. Listen carefully in Galatians 5 verse 13. This is what Paul writes. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another. And then verse 15, he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Do you want to know who bites and devours in the New Testament? This is what Peter says. He says, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. John says in Revelation 12, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. You hear what Paul is saying in Galatians? Be careful about not loving. Because if we're not loving, we're going to be devouring. And devouring the body is an intention of Satan. May we never think that these one another commands are optional, that they're recommendations or suggestions. No, they are good commands who come from a good king. As I have loved you, you love. As I have forgiven you, you forgive. As I have served you, you serve. As I have welcomed you, you welcome. Jesus would go on to say that if we don't do this, the measure to which we give is the measure to which we'll get it. This is the danger. This is the danger. Now, my last question is the power. I got two sub points under power. I want to look at the power to do this. And I want to look at the power of doing this, right? The power to do this. Look, I know this is hard. This posture and this practice that it, it, it's beyond hard, that it's impossible. Because to love and to serve and to submit ourselves, it, it requires that we are humble. It requires that our pride be set aside. It requires that we die. It requires that we stop throwing around titles and accolades. It requires that we look like Jesus. And yet, don't we know that this is hard? It's contrary to the very fabric of the flesh. And so where's the power to love one another this way? The output is loving people, the body of Christ, as Jesus has loved us. That, that's the output. What's the input? It has to be the love of God in Christ. In other words, we can't give what we don't first receive. That unless the love of God in Christ flows into us, that same love will not flow out of us. And Peter is learning this in our passage. That, that, that Peter and Judas, something is going on because their names of all the other disciples are mentioned. So Judas 
receives the love, but he doesn't reciprocate. But did you notice Peter's posture at the beginning of the passage? He says, Lord, you can't wash me. Don't do it. In other words, he is resisting the, 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 the loving service of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Peter, if I don't do this, you have no part of me. If I don't love you this way, if you don't let my love wash over you, there is no way in the world you can live into and up to these other things I'm calling you to do. That's Jesus' way of saying, Peter, you cannot do what I'm calling you to do unless you receive my love. And Peter, unlike Judas, he was able to see the whole story. Judas betrayed Jesus, went into the night, and took his own life. He didn't see the whole story, but Peter did. Peter was alive. Peter knew what was happening. How was Peter changed? Because church history tells us that Peter not only wrote epistles, Peter also died and was crucified upside down. What changed him where he would give his life in service of Jesus? What changed him where he would literally lay down his life for the church and for the gospel? What changed him? What caused him to be crucified, not right side up like Jesus, but upside down because he didn't think himself worthy to be crucified right side up like Jesus? What changed him? He saw he saw that this foot washing this day was pointing to something greater the next day. He saw that, 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 that this Jesus who is eating and drinking today will get to a cross and say, I thirst. He saw that this Jesus who is taking off his garments today to serve them will have his clothing ripped off of him tomorrow. He saw this Jesus who is washing their dirty feet from dust from Palestinian roads today will go to a cross and he will wash them with the filth of their sin. He will wash them and make them clean tomorrow. That he saw that Jesus would not just absorb the filth from their feet onto a towel attached to him, that, that, that tomorrow on the cross, he's going to absorb our sin to himself and bear the weight of that on a cross. Peter got to see the whole story. And this is why Peter himself writes later in his book, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says he committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been, we have been healed, for we were like sheep astraying, but we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Peter would go on to write in 2 Peter, his divine power. His divine power has granted us all things. You hear what Peter is saying? The love of God and the power of God 
went into his heart and it put down an anchor never to be removed. Peter is saying, outside of God's grace and God's power, I would be like Judas. I too betrayed Jesus. I too denied Jesus. I too left in the night and sat by a fire and warmed myself. I too did what Judas did. And yet it is because of the grace of God and the mercy of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that he did not let me go. He did not lose me. He set an anchor in my heart and he has not left me. That that is what changed Peter. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. The only way he's able to give and be crucified upside down and write and and use his time and his talent to leave us epistles, the only way he's able to do any of that is because the love of God went deep inside of him. So little children, maybe this might help. What's your favorite car? Is it a Jeep that you can take all the doors off and all the tops off and you can ride around? Is it a sports car because you want to drive really, really fast? Is it a pickup truck because you want to be able to pick up boulders and, 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 and wood and transport them? Is it a minivan? Like, like, like what is your favorite vehicle? You do know that that car, if it's pristine, if it's beautiful, if it's all you've ever wanted, it goes nowhere unless gasoline goes inside of it. It goes nowhere. It can't. It needs to run off of something. And here is what Jesus is saying. Without the gospel going in us, We can do none of this, none of what he's calling us to. But when the love and power and the work of Jesus goes deep into our souls, we can be and do all that God asks of us by his grace and by his spirit. That's the power to do this. It's the gospel. That if we are full and abounding of God's love, if we are making much of Jesus' service and his humility for us, then we can give that. What's the power of this? The power of it, one, is that we image Jesus. We glorify him. We are following in his footsteps. But two other things. The first thing is that we actually convey the status to others that is easily diminished by sin and this world. What do I mean by that? Listen to this quote. Foot washing did not only communicate something about the person who performed the washing. It also communicated something about the recipient of the washing. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he is not simply enacting for the disciples who he is. He is also enacting 
who they are in him. By washing their feet, he is preparing them for their new identity as a result of his death and resurrection. I love that quote because it's forcing us to look at the disciples. Now, what's happening to the disciples as Jesus humbles himself and he's, as he serves them, they are becoming clean. Did you notice in John's gospel, he says, I no longer call you servant. He says, I call you my friend. What's happening? You see, what Jesus is doing to the disciples is enacting who they will be in him. I, says Jesus, am king. And I, says Jesus, have humbled myself and took on the form of servant. And I'm going to wash your feet and wash you on the cross. Why? So that I can exalt you. To be my people, my bride. You are heirs and co heirs with me. You are sons and daughters, and you are clean. In other words, what Jesus is saying is as he washes them, he is showcasing their new and real status. Have you thought about that? That when we serve one another, that what we are doing is enacting who they are in Christ, that the world will tell us that we're nothing, the world will tell us that we're failures, the world will tell us that we're marginalized, the world will tell us that we, that, that, that we can't get right, the world will tell us that we're unimportant, the world will tell us all these things, and yet when Jesus says, I wash you, I'm telling you and the world that you're not what they say. You're who I say you are. And when we serve and love one another, we are reminding people of their dignity and of their status before God. This is why one church father named Chrysostom, that he writes this. He says, let us wash one another's feet those of slaves especially. Think about that. In Jesus' day, if you were a slave, you were told all the time, you are nothing, you have no rights, you, are, you have no privileges, you can't vote, you can't, 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 can't. And then suppose you come into a church and someone who has wealth and status bends before you and washes your feet what is being communicated to that slave in that world? You are not what the world says to you. And I'm going to show you. That is powerful. That through our humble service, we are conveying to people their real identity in Christ. And lastly, look at verse 35. Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, when people see the church tripping over each other to be humble and to serve one another, 
The world sees that, and it's peculiar, and it's different, and they smell the aroma of Christ, and it prepares them to see the one who's done the greater act of service, and that's Jesus. So Jesus himself is saying, when we live this way, the world knows who I am, and the world knows who you truly are. I'll close with this. Many of you know, a few months ago, there, were, there was flooding in Jackson. And uh, on our missions conference, there were teams who came to our home because our home was in a flood zone. And you all packed us up. And you all moved furniture upstairs. And you all made trips to get sand and sandbags. And you all loved and served us. And about three or four weeks later, we moved back in, and you all came over and got us situated. One, I'm thankful. But two, I've seen what Jesus is talking about here. I've had neighbor after neighbor driving down the street, and they stopped in my driveway and they say boy that was a beautiful sight to behold that when you went in my neighbor's house and you put their deep freezer on rocks because they thought that they would get flooded when you went to my neighbor's house and poured out sandbags in their yards do you want to know the talk of my neighborhood it's been you and your love for Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. The power of loving one another this way, that the world sees him through it. May the Holy Spirit be the wind in your sail compelling you to love and humbly serve one another, starting in your home and permeating out into the body of Christ. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we commit our time to you and pray that we would not be hearers of this word, but Jesus says, blessed are you who do it. Father, make us a church that deeply loves one another. And thank you for the sweet affection that we have for one another. Thank you for people who call and pray and go and get groceries and drop off meals and pass out food and all of the ways in which this body is loving one another. Might today be a day where we're encouraged if that's our posture. Might today be a day where if we've been on the sidelines and we've not been engaged, that, that this becomes a day and where your spirit moves us to press in and lean into loving the body of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll pronounce the benediction and it'll come from uh, 2 Thessalonians. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God our Father who loved us and has given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And God's people said, Amen.